Balance Right, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs and agency owners looking to grow their business in a healthy, sustainable way. I'm Heather Zeitzwolf, CPA. I serve this community with coaching, profit advising, and virtual CFO services. Please join me as I talk with leaders in digital media, branding, advertising, design, marketing, and SEO. Hey there, welcome to Get the Balance Right podcast. On today's show, we have Jeff Spitzer. He is the Vice President of Client Services with ISA. It's a market research company in California. I've known Jeff since the late 90s. We were working for a company called RDD, which I've mentioned on the show before with our great boss, John Siepleton. Shout out to John again. In this interview, we talk about Jeff's nickname, Spit Dog, his love of mullets, and all things market research. I started market research in the early 90s, so I was really curious to see how it's changed over the years. I can really geek out on market research, but Jeff was like, "Uh, do you really want to talk about this subject the entire time? And so we did talk about the ways it did change, the ways it hasn't really changed that much. We also discussed how he works in market research by day, but he's a health crusader by night. We dive into all of that and about the way a market research company can help out with collecting data about the COVID pandemic. Jeff Spitzer, Spit Dog, welcome to my podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. You know, we've known each other for many years, going back, I believe, probably the late 90s. I don't even know where the name Spit Dog came from. Where did that come from? Oh, gosh. So when your last name is Spitzer, with some variation of spit in your name, you get called all kinds of things growing up. Bit, bitty, spitter. I've had people spit <laughs> like they were referring to me. When somebody referred to me as spit dog, I don't even remember when, high school, I think, maybe maybe shortly after high school. I was like, that one is like the least offensive of anything I've been called. So we'll, we'll keep that one. And so I, whenever somebody would reference me that way, I'd, I'd like respond because, yeah, let, let's make this one stick. And, and I have. And do you still go by that or is that like an old, am I just bringing up some old nickname? As long as I still have the email address spitdog at hotmail.com, which I still do, then it lives on. Creating an account on something and ask me for a username or a screen name. Like I'm trying to get away from it, but I keep coming back to it. So yeah, no, it is still a thing. When I asked you about being on this podcast, I discovered something I did not know about you. You used to be a garbage man? You did not know that about me? For about seven years of my life, I picked up garbage, like literally drove a garbage truck, picked up residential garbage for a living. Did you find anything good in there that you could keep? Oh, oh yeah, all kinds of stuff, of course. Anything from straight cash, $20 bills now and then, people would accidentally throw out. I brought home stereos. I brought home, short answer is yes. I brought lots of, like, there's a stereo I got lots of use of over the years, like sometimes Toys R Us, so at the dump, not actually in the... In on the curbside, but like at the dump, Boys R Us once in a while would just throw away a whole bunch of excess open package, whatever. You know, I had little kids at home. So when there's an unopened package of diapers at the dump, you take that home and use them. Probably TMI. If my son hears this, he's going to be like, you did what? You put me in what? Hey, they were good, man. They were good stuff. A sticky banana peel on the side of the box, but there's still... <laughs> Swipe it off. It doesn't hurt. No. Yeah, no, I did it for six years when I lived in California. 
and about another year when I moved to Oregon before I finally got a job uh, where I could take a shower before work instead of after work, which was my entire goal, actually. And actually, that job was RDD. When did you get into programming? Was it while you were still being a garbage man? Did you learn how to be a programmer? I did. So I went back to school. So I dropped out of college young. My son was born two weeks before I turned 20. So I had a kid young. So I dropped out of college to take care of my young family, got a job as a garbage man. And it wasn't until going through a divorce that I was like, well, what do I want to do with my life? I'm 26. I've been picking up garbage for a living. This isn't what I wanted out of life. So I decided to go back to school. Funny enough for you, I opened, this is how I decided what I was going to do. I opened the classified. This is back when there was newspapers. And I said, what's in demand? It was accounting positions and computer tech type positions and computer programmers. I knew nothing about either. So I went back to to Clackamas Community College. I took one accounting class, like intro to accounting and one intro to computer decided I hated accounting, wanted nothing to do with it, so computers it was. I got into computer programming, learned uh, Visual Basic, C++, none of which I ever used at RDD, but it was enough to where, you know, when I went to the interview, I knew enough knowledge and had enough, I don't know, gumption where they was like, let's take a chance on this guy. That's hilarious. The, the only reason why I got a job at RDD was because I bought a newspaper that day. It was back when Monster, I think, was just starting, and I was like, you know, maybe I should just get a newspaper and try that. And that's where that ad was. That was your parlay. Parlay? I don't know if that's a word. Parlay into... It's definitely a word. That was your parlay into market research. And then from there, you went from programmer, then you became an account manager, and then you got into sales, right? So yeah, no, you got it right. So I, I did programming for a couple of years and then moved into project management for a few years and then eventually moved into sales. And I've been in sales ever since. So that was like 05, I moved into sales. So believe Believe it or not, I've been I've been in research for over 20 years and in sales for three quarters of that time. And where are you at now? I'm with a company uh, called ISA based out of Los Angeles, similar to what RDD could have been had they still been around. We do the same sort of stuff, a lot of data collection, but we also do full service research, variety of methodologies. And I work on the client side. Hey there, this is Heather. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also a CPA and profit advisor. I help creative agencies grow in a sustainable manner. Right now, I'm offering a complimentary healthcare check of your business. So if you go down to the show notes, you'll see a link and you can sign up. All right, now back to the show. When I talked to you first about being on the show, I was like, yeah, I want to talk about how market research has changed over the years. And and, you're, and you told me, well, it's kind of stayed the same. But back when I started in like 1990, 91, something like that, it was all paper and pencil. We'd call people on the phones and yeah. it must have changed since then. So how has okay. it? Believe it or not, some of that does still happen. What we do in survey research, like what we did at RDD, primarily survey research, the methodologies have, they have, they have changed. Traditionally, research companies have been slow to adopt new technology. That's changed in the last 10 years or so. There's been an influx. There's been a lot of investor money coming in, giving these companies the ability to grow and invest in new technologies and new methodologies. So it's really just been in the last 10 years or so that things have really gone more digital, more online. 20 years ago, they were starting to go online. 
just with online surveys, but now there's things like online qualitative research where you're not only having a conversation like this with somebody online, but you can have them participate in online focus groups, online journal entries, sort of chronicling their shopping experience with their mobile device, because everybody has a computer in their pocket now. Go to the store, talk about why you're there, what you see, why you're choosing this product over that product. And that's all very rich data for the end users, for the manufacturers, and trying to figure out what's going to get you to buy their product over the other one sitting right next to it on the shelf. So it has changed. We still do telephone surveys, believe it or not. There's some populations that you still have to reach on the phone or in person, where you do like in person intercepts, although COVID sort of killed in person for now. A lot of it has moved online since there is that technology now, and there's been a lot more innovation. So now there's not just survey research, but there's log scraping, social media scraping. There's all this machine learning technology that's being incorporated into research. A lot of that stuff, the data that you get, the transactional data, that a lot of companies use now, it's not of as much use without without pairing it with survey data. So you know why. So you can see what people did, what people said online, what people have purchased, but you don't know why, what led them there. And so that's where survey research comes in or doing other types of like in-person research to really understand what's motivating them to get to the end result that you see. So when you say scraping, does that just mean like some kind of computer program that kind of goes through and sees what things people are talking about? Basically, yeah. So when, when you give permission on all the apps on your device, you give them permission to access your Facebook profile. That information is then mined for data so they can understand you better, understand and try and predict what you're going to do next, like what you're going to buy, how they can better put an ad in front of you that's going to attract you. It's all designed to try and get our dollar. So sample must, that must be far more complex than it used to be. When you go to get some sort of sample, I mean, now they have Google searches that they have information on all these different people. Like, how do you get sample these days? And like, who holds all this data? Is it Google that distributes it out? I mean, how does that work? Everybody's trying to do their own thing right now. So Google obviously has tons of data, tons of behavioral data, what you've searched for, where you've gone, what you've done. But what that, again, it doesn't tell you is why. Why did you go to Best Buy? You know, why did you choose to go to Best Buy over Office Depot or the survey data? Let me back up. You asked me about about sample. How you buy sample now, a lot of it online is online panels. Companies like ours ask consumers and businesses, for that matter, to opt in to take surveys. So if you wanted to do research, say you were programming something on SurveyMonkey or Qualtrics or whatever, you can then have them source it for you, or you can hire somebody like us to source the sample. So what we do is we would access our, basically our opt-in databases of people, which are panels now, and they have, we have tons of profiling information. So you want people who meet certain demographics or have shared that they've done certain experiences or interested in certain things, and we have that profile, we can direct them to your survey. Sort of how it works now. Of course, there is still telephone sample, and so there's companies that house data of people's names, phone numbers, addresses, and things like that, where you can call them on the phone or send them something in the mail to do survey research. But a lot of it's moved, shifted online because online is a lot cheaper now. And you would go to a panel supplier, of which we are one, to have them fulfill your online survey. The whole concept of random dialing and is it moving away from being so random and now is it 
really targeted towards the consumer? That's a big thing, especially in academic research, is they want they want probability samples. They want to know that it's a true random sample. And most online research is not. It's a convenient sample. It's people who have opted in to take a survey. It's not somebody who randomly had their phone number ring. It's somebody who got an invitation to take a survey because they said they wanted to take a survey. So that's not truly representative of the population, especially when you consider there's some group of folks, you know, at certain income levels or certain ethnicities who don't have access to the internet like you know, a lot of people do. They don't have a device in their pocket or they don't have a steady internet connection, things like that. So they're being left out. They don't even have the opportunity to opt into those kind of panels. That is something that panel companies are getting better about in reaching out to folks like that. Some have gone as far as to supply an internet connection and a computer to have these people on their panel so that their their panel is more representative of the general population. But that is still a thing, trying to get representative. And most online panels are not representative of the general, at least not to that degree. So if someone wanted to be on a panel, is there any perks to being on a panel? Yeah. Yeah. You're, everybody's incentivized to take online survey. Generally, like the way ours works and the way most of them work now is you accumulate points that you then cash in for gift cards. Really? Yeah. And so you have people who are professional survey takers, a concern in the industry. So people who are reside on every panel and they're spend their entire day taking surveys, you know, for 25 cents a pop <laughs> to, uh, to accumulate their, their income that way. Because I remember doing surveys where you'd have to keep somebody on the phone for 45 minutes and all they got was to speak with us, but it wasn't even really to talk to us. It was just to answer the questions that were written down. And believe it or not, some people still will do that, but most people won't do it for free. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you, whenever I get a survey that comes my way, if there's an Amazon gift card at the end of it, I'll take it. That's right. And do you, do you take it if it's a guaranteed gift card or just for opportunity to get into a drawing? A drawing. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. All right. I'll remember that and we'll, we'll send you some. I have one in the past, so it has worked out for me. Awesome. I've won like a $50 gift card and $25 gift card for Amazon. It's pretty nice because nice. Yeah, they just give you a code and then you put it into Amazon. I used to win stuff all the time. I used to win radio contests all the time when that was the thing. I don't, maybe it still is. I don't really listen to radio. I listen to talk radio sometimes, but I don't like sports talk radio, but I don't like listen to the radio in the car or anything because we have so many other options now. But back in the day, like back in the 90s, I used to win stuff on the radio. I won a trip to the Super Bowl on the radio. I've won concert tickets. I've won all kinds of stuff on the radio. You had to dial in and be like the fifth caller or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I saw you actually in an interview on LinkedIn and you were talking to a woman about this COVID research. How did you get involved with that? What is that all about? There's a couple of different things we've done around COVID. The first is back in early March when it became like really apparent that this was a real thing and that it was, you know, a global, going to be a global pandemic. We started doing survey research amongst our online panel, like we just talked about. And we we started doing regular survey, like several times a week where we were trying to understand what information, how people understood the situation around coronavirus and now COVID and now global pandemic. We actually just released this report that you could download for free. In that report, it sort of shows you from back in early March to now, sort of what the public has understood at each step, 
you know, where early on people didn't really understood how you contracted it. Some might say that we still don't understand that now, but early on when we were really in the dark about how it was transmitted, who was vulnerable, all these things, it was really interesting to see sort of what consumers understood versus what the experts were saying. The whole idea was just to help educate, help people make informed decisions, making decisions based on data instead of out of fear. That's the first thing we did. And that report you can download uh, off of our soapbox sample website. The other thing that we've been doing around COVID is we got involved with LA County. So we're, our, we're headquartered in Los Angeles. LA County health officials and experts at USC and Stanford Somehow, I'm not sure how the connection was made, but because we have access to people via our panels and our databases and our phones, we were able to help them. And we're still doing it in various counties all over California right now and still growing, helping recruit people to come and, and take antibody tests so that these researchers can then sort of track like, and make, make projections about what percentage of the population has been exposed and recovered. Uh, based on the the sample that we're providing and the people who are getting tested for COVID antibodies. So it's been really interesting. So this is non-traditional. This is not market research now. We got into sort of a an area that we hadn't been involved in before. This is more public health service. And it's actually because research slowed down so much, you know, with the pandemic, this has actually really helped and a big boost for our company. So for an antibody test, uh, what kind of incentives do you have to give out for that? I don't know what it is specifically. I don't know what the amount is specifically, but it, but it's cash. People show up, they get like a, a pinprick to, for a blood test, and then they learn their results later. Um, but they also get some sort of cash incentive. Tell me about what is this soapbox sample? What is that? So there's various divisions of our company that each focus in specific areas. Soapbox sample is the online division of the company. That's where we do all of our online research. That's where our panels that we talked about reside. That's where we do online surveys, things like that, or through our soapbox sample division. So there were some interesting questions in here. So when people do market research, you always have to wonder, like, are they telling the truth or are they just kind of like, you know, just saying what you, to make themselves look better, they might answer a certain way, but this is very funny. On here it says, I do this more, cooking at home, washing your hands before you eat. And all these people were like, 59%, 62%, 57% more are washing their hands before they eat. Aren't they washing their hands before they eat before? Yeah, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. Sometimes I see survey results and I'm like, is this really what people are doing? I mean, if we survey people about how often they wash their hands after using the restroom, is 90% going to say yes because they know that they're supposed to? Or is it going to be like what I see in a public restroom, in a men's public restroom, where the guys are just walking in, walking out, never hitting the sink at all? It's scary, man, let me tell you. I know. It's like, oh, wow, you need a pandemic to get you to wash your hands before dinner. That's <laughs> Right. And then there was another one that said, um, what are you doing for fun? 69% are watching TV and movies, 18% working, 13% reading, 4% other. My mind went other, 4% puzzles, masturbation. Like, what are these? <laughs> the above. <laughs> it's a really interesting piece of data and not piece of data. It's a, it's a really interesting report and it's visually very interesting as well. Keep the link in the show notes for sure. Oh, cool. Well, if anybody listening does download it, it's like a chat bot on the website. You know, you talk to the chat bot, you give them your, 
the chatbot your email address and then it sends you the report. Tell the chatbot where you heard it. Oh, really? Tell the chatbot anything, but tell the chatbot that you heard it on this podcast and we'll see how many of your listeners actually downloaded it. Oh boy. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see what my listenership is. Hey there, this is Heather. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, if you wouldn't mind, please hit the subscribe button now. That way you'll never miss an episode. All right, now back to the podcast. I do want to ask you about your health coaching. How'd you get into that? Probably like a lot of people get into stuff like that. My own personal journey. I don't know what I weighed back when we worked together. I was probably never really overweight. You know, there was a good chunk of my life where I was slightly overweight, pre-diabetic. At the high point, I was at like 205 or so when I weighed. And so when I look back at old pictures, I'm like, yeah, I, I have lost some weight. I'm at like 170 now. Really, it was my own journey. So my own journey in understanding more about what a healthy diet looks like, you know, losing weight on my own, and then wanting to share that with other people. So I started like, people would say, hey, you've lost a lot of weight. What are you doing? You know, things like that. And I'd tell them and then I'd, I'd be like helping people. And I was like, you know what? This is fun. I really enjoy this. And so I decided to seek out programs where I could become a health coach. And I, I, I did the first one, which is an organization called Precision Nutrition, top one of the top uh, organizations in coaching in general, especially for health coaching. When I started, I, then I started coaching people after getting that certification and quickly realized that it's almost never about the food. So while I learned through Precision Nutrition, Everything about how our body metabolizes food, how we're all different, what we're, you know, what can work for one person may not work for another. Uh, there's like no one specific diet that's right for everybody. I get that question a lot, and you know, it, 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 it's really not what it's about. It's about you know balance and figuring out what's right for you. Anyway, long story short, I figured out that it's not about the food. It's about why we don't do what we know we're supposed to do. So I sought out life coaching so I could really help people dig in deeper, figure out what the internal blocks, what the limiting beliefs are, what are the things that we've always believed about ourselves that are actually holding us back and sort of tackle those inner gremlins and remove those so that you can make the choice that you want to make as opposed to the, the choice that you feel like you have to make because it's just too tempting. So when do you find time to do this? Are you doing this kind of like on the weekends? I mean, you're you're a full-time salesperson, right? Yeah, evenings and weekends. Other market research organizations that you're involved with? I'm a member of the Insight Association. I've been involved. I was on the board of directors for the local chapter, the Northwest chapter, for 12 years, I think. 12 and a half years, something like that. Various positions, including two terms as president. So I've sort of done a lot uh, of you know, helping the organization put together educational programs, conferences. We do. We set up an endowment program. We set up uh, a scholarship program with OSU and with UW uh, for a while that we had had. There's a lot of things that we did there that I'm, I'm pretty proud of. But I finally, after 12 some odd years of being on that board, I finally stepped off at the end of last year so that I could start to focus on some other areas like doing more health coaching, like this other organization I got involved with called Braver Angels, which is about 
political polarization and helping bring people together. Uh, you know, I'm on the, the officer, I'm a, my local club officer for Toastmasters, which uh, we were chatting about the other day. Yeah, it turned out we're both in Toastmasters. We didn't even know that each other was in Toastmasters. We just... Yeah, that was funny. I believe we were on that meeting with like 300 some odd people in the chat going crazy. I saw something pop up saying, is this Spit Dog? And I was like, I can't even believe I saw that, let alone that you saw my name on there. Before we close, I do have to ask you about the mullet. You don't have a mullet anymore, but you had a mullet. No, now it's uh, short up front and long in the back. Now it's it's long up top and short everywhere else. Yeah, I had that mullet for far too long. But not anymore. They came back. They came back and sell for a while there. No. So I think I first grew my mullet in the late 80s i kept that thing well into the 2000s i mean i kept that thing way too long i mean i, I cut it a couple of times and i'd grown it out long all over a couple of times but for some reason i kept going back to the mullet i don't know and i always thought it was cool right it wasn't until it was probably like early 2000 2001 2002 i took my son to an offspring concert at the roseland and there was this i forget i don't remember who opened but it was some punk band that i'd never heard of and the guy the lead singer is like this next song is about this haircut no you guys know what i'm talking about it's it's short up front you know it's business up front and party in the back and i'm i was out in the crowd going yeah buddy that's me look at this you know and then they launch into the song and i making out some of the lyrics i was like wait a minute he's making fun of me <laughs> wait maybe this thing isn't so cool after all <laughs> Yeah, I was in the dark on that for way too long. Thanks for warning me about it. Did make a comeback at some point, but then it came and went again. I, I rocked that Camaro cut. I, I was proud of it for a while. Well, Jeff, it's been a delight having you on the show. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Hopefully you have something useful out of this. Thanks for having me on. This has been fun. Hey, this is Heather. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you found value in the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave me a rating on iTunes or just simply tell a friend about it. And if you're interested in learning more about my profit advising and coaching, please set up a discovery call by using the link in the show notes. All right, thanks so much and see you next time.